Welcome to Skim This. There was a lot that happened this week, so we're kicking things off by hitting the major headlines, including WNBA star Brittany Griner's release from Russian prison and the runoff election in Georgia that scored Democrats an extra Senate seat. Plus, we'll skim the controversial Supreme Court case that could change how elections are run in this country. And speaking of controversial, have you thought about deleting TikTok from your phone? I don't think everyone should say, hmm, I have to weigh amorphous potential national security risks against my own sort of individual cultural interests in deciding whether to download this app. We spoke to two experts who ran through the pros and cons, so you can decide for yourself. And to close things out, our team tried the AI avatar app that's been flooding your social media feeds. And the results were questionable. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, some breaking news we got this morning. Russia has freed WNBA star Brittany Griner in a dramatic high-level prisoner exchange with the U.S. WNBA star Brittany Griner is coming home. Griner has been in Russian captivity since February, after authorities there allegedly found hashish oil in her luggage. Over the past nine months, Griner's teammates, fans, and activists around the country have called on the Biden administration to get her home safely, noting that her detention was a human rights issue. Griner had been sentenced to nine years in a Russian prison, putting pressure on the White House to reach a deal and fast. Finally, this morning, Russia announced that Griner will be freed as part of a prisoner swap for Victor Boot, a notorious Russian arms dealer. Griner is now expected to return to the U.S. within the next 24 hours. Here was her wife, Sherelle Griner, speaking this morning. Today, I'm just standing here um, overwhelmed with emotions, but the most important emotion that I have right now is just sincere gratitude um, for President Biden and his entire administration. Today, it's just a happy day for me and my family, so um, I'm going to smile right now. (laughs) Um, Thank you. Griner's release has also put a spotlight on another U.S. citizen being held in Russia, Paul Whelan. He's a former Marine who was arrested in Moscow in 2018 on espionage charges. Whelan was not a part of this exchange, but the White House says they're not giving up on getting him out. For our next headline, let's head to Georgia. I am Georgia. I am an example and an iteration of its history. This week, Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock defeated his Republican opponent, Herschel Walker, in a runoff election for the state Senate seat. His win gives Democrats a 51-49 majority in the Senate, which is actually one more seat than they had before. So what does this victory mean? This win could help Democrats speed up judicial nominations. Not to mention, It could also dilute the power of centrist Democratic senators like Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. Over the past two years, they've held up critical legislation over their concerns, 
and have been a roadblock within their own party. But that's where the power of this extra seat ends. Because the House will be controlled by Republicans. So you can expect not a whole lot from either party over the next two years. In the meantime, Democrats are trying to get a lot done in the final days of this lame duck session of Congress. And today, they checked another thing off their to-do list when the House passed the Respect for Marriage Act, a bill that federally protects same-sex and interracial marriage. That bill is now on its way to President Biden's desk to sign. So that's one major DC headline from this week. But let's talk about the other political bombshell we got on Tuesday. A New York jury has convicted the Trump Organization of 17 counts of criminal tax fraud and other financial crimes. After a dramatic trial in New York, Trump himself was not charged. This is more than a legal blow to a company that has long defined him and his family. It's also a potential challenge to his political standing. On Tuesday, the Trump Organization, which is the real estate company founded by former President Donald Trump, was found guilty of committing criminal tax fraud. You might be thinking, wait, which investigation is this anyway? And yeah, there are a couple. This case was brought by the Manhattan District Attorney and focused on whether the organization committed tax fraud after the company helped top executives avoid paying taxes on perks like apartments and luxury cars. This summer, the company's former CFO even pleaded guilty and became a key witness for the prosecution in this case. Now, a jury has found the organization guilty of 17 criminal counts, including tax fraud and falsifying business records. We should point out, this isn't the only case being brought against the company. New York's Attorney General Letitia James filed a $250 million civil lawsuit against the company in September, alleging the organization committed widespread fraud. Meanwhile, Trump himself is under investigation by the Department of Justice for his handling of classified documents. And he faces a separate legal inquiry in Georgia for potential election-related crimes. But those are all open investigations. And a Manhattan jury only found the organization guilty of tax fraud, not the former president. Now, the Trump organization faces a maximum of $1.6 million in fines, and the ruling could affect its future business dealings. In the meantime, the company says it plans to appeal. As for whether this decision will impact Trump's personal brand as a politician and presidential candidate, well, that remains to be seen. For our final headline, let's get to some international news and take a look at what's going on in Iran. On Thursday, Iran carried out its first known execution of a protester since nationwide uprisings started in September. The regime has already sentenced several protesters to death, and many activists fear this is only the beginning, as the government continues to crack down on dissent. We'll also point out this execution took place as protesters in Iran were in the middle of a three-day strike, which shuttered businesses in more than 40 cities nationwide. Some are calling the strike one of the largest in Iran in decades. And it started after Iran's attorney general said at a press conference last weekend that the country's morality police would be abolished. But here's the thing. It's not actually up to him or his branch. 
and Iran's government hasn't confirmed that it's true. Some activists and protesters are saying the government might just rebrand the morality police and that they'll be back under a new name, which, by the way, has happened before. They also still want Iran's supreme leader out of power, but no one's holding their breath on that one. So it's too early to tell if Iran is actually bending to protesters in the country. Looking ahead, Iranian officials say they're reviewing the nation's mandatory hijab law, and we could hear an update on that in the coming weeks. It's been a busy week at the Supreme Court. 476-303 Creative, LLC versus Elanis. On Monday, the Supremes heard a case called 303 Creative v. Elanis, which asks whether a Colorado designer can refuse to design a wedding website for a same-sex couple, despite the state's anti-discrimination laws. Another case that was on the docket this week was Moore v. Harper, and it's got legal experts and election officials on the edge of their seats. We'll explain what this case is and why it's so controversial in 60 seconds. For the first 140 years of the Republic, there was not a single state court. Moore v. Harper is a case from North Carolina. Last year, state Republicans there drew new state voting maps. Then the GOP-dominated legislature signed off on them. But voters said not so fast. They contested the maps in state court, where a judge ruled that the maps were illegally gerrymandered, a.k.a. they favored one party too much. But that decision didn't fly with the state legislature, who argued we should have the final say here. And they used a fringe legal theory called the independent state legislature theory to back that up. That theory claims that the U.S. Constitution gives state legislatures the power to draw maps and come up with election rules without the review of state courts or constitutions. Now, this case has made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the justices will ultimately answer the question, who is in charge of the elections in our country? And that's why this case is so controversial. The North Carolina legislature says it ends with us. We should get all the power. But according to many legal analysts, without the courts involved, there would be no system of checks and balances at the state level. And if SCOTUS rules in favor of the North Carolina legislature, experts say there will be some major implications. In the short term, that decision could lead to more widespread gerrymandering. While some are even going as far to say state officials could potentially overturn the will of the voters in their states in state or federal elections. The other big implication of this case actually has to do with the Supreme Court itself. Historically, the high court has shied away from taking on big political cases. Now, considering the justices agreed to hear Morvey Harper in the first place, experts think SCOTUS might wade into the political waters even more, which is concerning to some, considering the Supreme Court is seen as more politicized than ever. We won't know how the Supremes really feel about this case until they dish their final opinions, likely sometime next summer. But considering the court seems split during oral arguments, 
This decision could surprise us more than the White Lotus finale. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. What do you see as the main threats posed by TikTok? And how do you think those are best addressed at a policy level? We, the FBI, do have national security concerns uh, about the app. Its uh, parent company is controlled by the Chinese government. Uh, and it gives them the potential to leverage the app in ways that I think should concern us. That's FBI Director Christopher Ray speaking last week at an event in Michigan. Ray is the latest government official to raise some serious concerns about one of the world's most popular social media apps. That's right, TikTok. His concerns echoed those of Brendan Carr, a commissioner of the Federal Communications Commission, who just last month called for TikTok to be banned in the U.S. And this week, Maryland became the latest state to ban state employees and contractors from using the app on their work devices, following similar bans in South Dakota and Nebraska. So now that government officials have indicated that the clock is ticking for TikTok, we started to ask ourselves, should we delete TikTok? A quick Google search gave us mixed results. So today, we're asking two experts about the pros and cons of Control-Alt-Deleting the app. And at the end, you can decide for yourself. Up for debate. Debatable. Rejoinder. All in favor? That is false. That's the sunk cost fallacy. Wrong. He's engaging in reductio ad absurdum. I have the floor. I rest my case. That's up for debate. First, we're going to start with the arguments in favor of deleting TikTok. Here to help lay things out is Emily Baker-White, a technology reporter at Forbes. And she told us, some people have said to delete the app because of issues involving national security and data privacy. As a reminder, TikTok is owned by a Chinese company called ByteDance. And some experts fear that because the app was developed in China, the Chinese government could have or get access to some of that data, no matter where it's being stored. The fear is that ByteDance or the Chinese government could use the TikTok app to collect valuable information about Americans and then use that information in some way that could harm our national security later. Examples of this would be if, and this is a hypothetical, ByteDance or the Chinese government collected information about the location of military members, right? Or about what certain political figures were watching on TikTok. Technically, user data for Americans is supposed to be stored in the U.S. But according to Baker White's reporting, that might not be enough protection, which is why the Biden administration is still working out a data security deal with ByteDance. TikTok has dozens of backend tools that engineers who work for the company use every day to make sure that the app is still running. So the idea of separating out US user data and making it inaccessible to those people basically means rewriting all of the systems that make TikTok what it is. There's also sort of a structural problem though, because the people who are based in the US who are part of this sort of US focused team that is still gonna have access to US user data report to people in China. 
And so at a certain point, if your boss's boss's boss says, hey, I need you to pull this data for me and you know, send it here, you're not exactly in a position to say, no, I can't do that because that person is in charge of you. They're in charge of your job. U.S. user data was still being accessed by ByteDance employees in China into early 2022. And since then, my reporting has shown that that, that data access has continued. And that brings us to the other reason TikTok is considered a national security threat. It's algorithm. TikTok has this powerful system that learns what you like and pushes content to a personalized feed for users. It's considered best-in-class and scary accurate. And that's caused concern that the Chinese government or other adversaries could use this algorithm to spread propaganda or misinformation. A recent Pew study found that I think somewhere around 30% of Americans turn to TikTok to get their news. So this is a really real threat that if anyone were able to sort of manipulate what a couple hundred thousand people in Pennsylvania or Ohio or Florida see, that's an election right there. And this is not a threat that is specific to TikTok. We have seen election interference on other platforms. There is just an additional layer when it comes to TikTok that its parent company is subject to the laws of a foreign government. But besides concerns about what foreign officials could do with the algorithm, plenty of experts say the algorithm is problematic by itself because it's designed to addict users and promote misinformation and inflammatory content, and that that's reason enough to delete the app. So between sketchy data storage, an addictive algorithm, and tons of misinformation, some people have decided to delete their TikTok accounts. But honestly, that's not most people. And that brings us to the arguments in favor of keeping the app. For help laying those out, we turned to Cleo Abram. I'm a video journalist. For a long time, I worked at Vox on shows like Explained on Netflix and on Vox's YouTube channel. And then more recently, I launched my own production company. I started my own show. That show is called Huge If True, and it's on YouTube and TikTok. As we were sitting down, Abram did say that it's hard to weigh geopolitical concerns against the entertainment and cultural value of TikTok. In a lot of ways, it feels like two separate conversations. But she said the cultural impact of TikTok is powerful. It's a huge part of her work as a creator. And the app has become a heavyweight entertainment platform that sparks creativity and lets users have fun. For me, it really was about the relationship with the audience to start, the way that people respond to topics. It's just an incredibly engaged, active audience there. We say, I checked Twitter, I checked Insta, I checked Snap, I watched YouTube, I watched TikTok. And that's a really, really different thing. That doesn't come around very often. And so I think the days of people making dance videos as a stereotype on TikTok are long, long over. And I'm glad that people seem to realize that. I scratch the same kind of itch on TikTok that I do when I'm on YouTube in the sense that I feel like I'm learning. I feel like I'm cultivating a group of people that I learn from. And that's really special. A second reason to keep the app is the way that it connects people. Say what you want about the algorithm, but it has really helped a lot of people find community. TikTok became a gathering place when people were quarantined in the early days of COVID. And the app also played a big role in the spread of the Black Lives Matter movement throughout 2020. 
It really is a very individualized experience. And the result of that is that you can curate a community that feels really incredible for you, really gives you something that you might not be getting in your day-to-day life, whether that's people who look like you, who have the same concerns as you do, who might be talking about topics that you can't find information on in your community. That might be really positive. And Abram noted, there are things we can do to use TikTok more safely and avoid some of the traps of the algorithm. I would encourage people to be really mindful about how they train the algorithm that's serving them content. I actively swipe away from things that I may actually in that moment want to watch, but know that I don't want to train it to do that to me. But I think you can curate an experience on TikTok that is more conducive to how you want to spend your time. And I think data privacy versus time management are two very different things as well that fall within the individual assessment of whether or not it makes sense to have TikTok on your phone. Both our experts acknowledge deleting TikTok is a personal choice. And ultimately, it's the government's job to step in here with more data privacy regulation. I don't think everyone should say, hmm, I have to weigh amorphous potential national security risks against my own sort of individual cultural interests in deciding whether to download this app. Like, we can't expect regular people to do that. To the extent that the government decides there are national security risks, the government should be in charge of figuring out what they are and what we're going to do about them. I get caught up when people are individually responsible for their own data privacy. Like, we can have this conversation about exactly where our data goes. The truth is that we don't know in a lot of cases. The average person, they're busy. They have other stuff to think about. If there are real concerns here, like we should have that conversation at the macro level. We should create regulations in terms of consumer protection on the internet. That doesn't mean that people, you know, shouldn't delete TikTok if they don't think it either adds value to their life or if they're concerned about their own privacy. But in a bigger way, this conversation really needs to be had for all of us at the same time. And Baker White pointed out, we're only going to continue to have these conversations. Because while TikTok is the first social media giant from outside of the U.S., it probably won't be the last. We are in a little bit of a American exceptionalist bubble that we have never faced this question before. All of the other major social media platforms have been U.S. born and bred. And that's probably not going to be the case for all of the rest of them for all time. There are going to be foreign apps that we want to use that are useful to us, that enrich our lives. And we want to make sure that using those apps does not either sort of threaten our national security or threaten our own personal data privacy. To me, that sounds like we need a national data privacy law that is going to regulate not only TikTok, but also all the other companies, foreign and domestic, that could be sharing our data in ways that we don't like. This doesn't seem to me to be a TikTok-specific problem. TikTok seems to be a particularly good example of why we need clearer data privacy laws. Since the weekend, our feeds have been flooded with AI-generated photos of our friends. And that's thanks to a new app called Lenza AI, which just became the number one photo app in the App Store. 
According to one analysis, over 20 million people have already downloaded it. As for how it works, well, you basically just upload selfies, a lot of selfies, and it spits out avatar versions of you in different styles and settings. We were curious about it, so our associate producer Blake and our senior audio engineer Andrew took one for the team and tried it out. All my selfies were from when I was younger and more good looking. They call Gen Z the selfie generation, I feel like, and it is showing. I got six selected. Oh my God, there we go, 20 photos. It still costs money, even with the free trial. Is that $5.99 for you? Yeah, I'm going for the most popular option, which is 100 unique avatars. All right, I'm all set. Me too. But when the photos of Blake and Andrew came back, we noticed that they were a little bit off. Blake, I'm already seeing you blushing, you're cringing. I'm cringing because you're cringing. I need to see it. This is me as a fairy princess. Oh my God. It's very like hyper feminine. Yeah. It's made me look significantly more Asian. And they did enhance the size of my chest. I am not seeing what I'm seeing in these pictures in real life. So the fact that this could never look like I would never look like this in real life is so scary. The way the wind is slightly pushing back my hair. I'm like slightly gazing upwards suggestively. And they put me in this position. I didn't ask for this. Andrew, what did you get? There's a lot of like normal ones. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of very serious, almost religious iconography kind of stuff. <laughs> it did somehow know that I have chest hair, but I have more more than this. I'm definitely more in the dad bod category than this silly app imagined. We didn't need any more unrealistic beauty standards or more people telling us what they think we should look like. And then it's like, this AI who's supposed to not even be a person is reinforcing all of the shitty things we heard for so many years from people. So I'm kind of like, are you really that different computer than like a women's magazine from the 90s? Probably because it's trained on women's magazines from the 90s. And while that was just a sample size of two, we weren't the only ones who found that Lenza AI generated sexist and racist avatars. Some women on social media have posted that their avatars made their boobs bigger and slimmed their waistlines, with some even saying the app generated nude photos of them. And some Black users found that the app lightened their skin and made them appear white. The app also uses different avatar categories depending on what gender you select. Like, women can get photos in the fairy princess or fantasy genre, while male users can get rock star or astronaut. According to Ina Fried, chief technology correspondent for Axios, we shouldn't be surprised that the app generates these kinds of images. I mean, it starts from the moment you click that button that says woman, man, or other. It's now making a bunch of gendered assumptions. And we may like some of those, but some of them are problematic. The simple part is it comes from our human bias. We have bias in our society. So the data that trains these systems has bias. And similarly, the people who design it have biases. We have to correct for both of those things. We should note, the conversation around bias in AI has been going on for a long time. But now, because more people are interacting with the technology in their everyday lives, that conversation has reached a wider audience. I'm glad 
it's so problematic and here's why. It's visibly problematic, so we know there's a problem. When we're still talking about relatively trivial things like a photo editor, that we understand bias, that we really learn to understand why systems are making these decisions and correct for it, whether it's filters that allow us all to look prettier and skinnier. That's problematic in and of itself, but it's obviously a new level of problematic when that gets built into a system. So it's now not just you choosing it, but a system outputting that bias. And Freed reminded us that AI technology has so many different applications, from photo apps like Lenza to the bail system. So it's important to call out the bias when we see it, even when it's a photo of us as a fairy. It's being used to make decisions, advise on things like who gets a loan, who gets parole, who gets sentenced to what in crimes, what schools people get into, what jobs they get. So, you know, as I mentioned those things, those are all really consequential things. And even a small amount of bias there is a really important thing. So, again, to me, I'm glad there's visible bias in this machine because it alerts us to the problem. And it's a very real problem. It's really important for us to say this isn't okay. And I think it's really important that we uplift the folks that are saying, hey, this lightened my skin. This put me in a stereotypical depiction. Because we are at this infancy of AI where we can say this is okay and this isn't okay. And unfortunately, we can't count on the companies to do it. I think we've learned over the last few years that technology is going to keep going until it hits a roadblock. And we need to be that roadblock around some of the issues of bias here. Still, if you're curious and want to see your avatar, Freed says there are ways we can use AI technology in a smarter, safer way. Do some research about the privacy policy. What are they going to do with their photos? You do actually, with Lenza, have the option to tell them, delete all my information. And certainly, that's the best practice. Again, I'm not always good about doing it. At the same time, remember that that's being used to train an algorithm. That could be a face recognition algorithm. So sometimes it's not doing anything individually bad to you, but it might be doing something collectively that you're not okay with. Okay, now that Andrew and Blake have had all the fun, I'm going to try it out for myself. But I don't think I have enough selfies to make this work. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Sarah Collins. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast. It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.